Hello, everyone. So we're going to continue on with our look at the Crusades. Uh, last time we looked at sort of in a way, think about the domestic policy of the papacy, its reform and expansion. And so this time we're going to look at the kind of like the foreign policy of the papacy uh, and its expansion of its power and prestige uh, across Christendom, as well as its involvement with the Middle East uh, and the different Crusades uh, that covered this time period. So let's go ahead and dive right on in. So the Crusades primarily are a series of military expeditions that were uh, blessed by the Western Catholic Church in the Middle East to reclaim uh, what was termed as the Holy Land, uh, regions like Jerusalem, the Levant, uh, Israel. Uh, and so this was a this this was an outpouring response to uh, requests made by the Byzantine Emperor as well as other different dynamics that we'll look at here in a little bit. There are many different crusades. We're going to look at the first crusade, the second, third, and fourth. Um, we'll also talk about the fifth and sixth crusade. Historians and scholars debate. Some say there's eight crusades, nine crusades, and those are only listed for specifically involving the Holy Land, but there's also wide, wide variations of different crusades as well against heretics, uh, like the Albigensian crusade, as well as the one the crusades involving the Teutonic Knights. So there's different types of crusades that took place in the span of 300, uh, 200, 300 years. Um, the crusades in and of themselves had significant impacts on Western society and the church as a whole, really uh, changing and transforming, like I said, expanding. The crusades really expanded with the rise of the power of the papacy and also were in some ways related to the decline of the papacy, tying in with that decline. Um and also factoring in with the expansion of Christendom in Europe, as well as bringing back uh, ideas, writings like Aristotle, um, expanding trade networks, the rise of Italian city-states. There's so myriad different factors of the Crusades, uh, not just when dealing with church history, but also the political and economic military history of Europe as a whole. So Crusades are a huge fundamental part and picture of that development. So the causes of the crusade, what trigger these events to take place? So it originates uh, with a letter by the Byzantine emperor Alexius I Comnenus uh, uh, to Pope Urban II. So in, in the Byzantine Empire, there was a, at the high point under Basil II of the Macedonian dynasty. After Basil II, there was a series of decline. And what tied in with that decline was the defeat of the Byzantine army by the Seljuk Turks. The Turks were a, a Central Asian uh, nomadic group that migrated into the Middle East, uh, converted to Islam, uh, and built the Seljuk Empire before breaking off into different uh, emirates and Turkish kingdoms. Um, but the Seljuk Turks defeated Alexis I Comnenus at the Battle of Manzikur, defeated the Byzantine army and claimed uh, uh, pretty much all of Asia Minor, as well as Syria from the Byzantine Empire. So there was immediate military loss, financial loss for the Byzantines, um, and the Byzantines were in a very weakened and difficult position. So, uh, so Alexis I sends a letter to Pope Urban II asking for uh, Western support in, this, in the form of military support. Now, Alexis I was not thinking of a massive army he was really thinking of a small number of elite troops to help supplement his 
already reduced force from the loss of land and the difficulty with finances, having to produce and train this force. He was looking for a kind of like a mercenary group to help help uh, increase the substantial power of his army. He wasn't looking to reclaim the, the Holy Land, reclaim Jerusalem, only to really reclaim, reclaim those lost territories of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, while that was going on, too, there was an increased level of pilgrimages taking place. Um, in a sense, we talked about with pilgrimage with the the, the monastery of Cluny, uh, how it had a kind of network of pilgrimage roads to uh, the, uh, uh, the pilgrimage site of Santiago in Spain. Uh, but more and more Christians began to uh, seek pilgrimages and passages to the Far East, to um, Jerusalem. They wanted to be a part of and associated with the different relics associated with Christ because there was a sense of value with that being associated with Christ because it was a the veneration of those relics could bring divine grace and blessing. So there was an increased desire to go on these pilgrimages. And supposedly there was reports coming back of pilgrims being mistreated and abused. And of course, most of that did did take place too in the reality of things. Um, so all these different factors, the desire to go on a pilgrimage that these pilgrims wanted to participate in, the request for help, really kind of shaped the development of these crusades taking place. The crusades were initiated by Pope Urban II's uh, Council of Claremont sermon speech. Uh, in that he that the Council of Claremont, which had many different French nobles and knights, uh, in November 27, 1095. Really, the, the, the speech was geared towards ceasing the infighting of these different nobles and knights because with the rise of feudalism and the power held in these local lords and landowners and the reduced power of these monarchs, these local landowners and lords would fight amongst themselves for wealth and for property and prestige. Um, and so it would negatively impact the local people who lived on these lands as well as impact the church as well. So Pope Urban II uh, was trying to reduce that level of internal conflict within these kingdoms by these different local feudal lords. And so kind of uh, trying to shift their energies away from each other to a new enemy and reigniting that call to go east and to reclaim the land of Jerusalem. In November on November 27, 1095. So the term crusader uh, comes from the Latin word for crux, which means cross. And so these crusaders were those who, uh, in a sense, picked up the cross uh, to go on this pilgrimages. Actually, the term crusader really doesn't appear until the Second Crusade. These the in the First Crusade they view themselves as pilgrims going on a pilgrimage. Yes, in, in a military sense but they still used, viewed themselves in that particular way. Now, uh, to show that you were on this crusade, you would have, you know, you might have a piece of cloth or on your shirt, on your back, designating with a cross, showing that you're uh, you're a person on this crusade. Um, some extreme cases were being branded uh, to go on this crusade. Now, there are mo different motivations for why these individuals went on this crusade, because thousands upon thousands of people over hundreds and hundreds of years went on these different crusades. And there's different motivations. There's like, there's religious motivations, secular motivations and attractions to want to draw people to go on this crusade. So for example, uh, indulgences were offered to uh, crusading knights. Uh, anybody who went on a crusade can be promised pardon from all 
temporal penalties of their sins. So you're offered this indulgence for all the temporal penalties. So your time in purgatory can be shortened. Now, the first now indulgences actually existed in a sense before the before the first crusade. For example, uh, they were offered uh, uh, by by previous popes like Pope Clement to uh, um, offer remission for sins and fighting against the Norman Knights. So there was there was uh, in a sense indulgences already being uh, playing a role in a, in a, in which the papacy would would uh, hand them out to the people now but what what's what is it's elevated in a sense because now not only can you get a temporary temporary remission of certain sins but all your sins and then not only that you can by the second crusade if you you can get indulgence for eternal life if you go on this crusade and you win or if you die you attain eternal life and then by the third fourth crusade if you pay for somebody to go on a crusade you gain that indulgence yourself. So now you can finance somebody to go. You yourself don't have to go, but you can yourself can attain eternal life by paying a knight or someone else to go on this crusade, which was expensive. Um, like I said, there that was the spiritual attractions of wanting to go on this crusade. There's also, like I said, secular attractions as well. So for example, if you went on this crusade, um, you're protected by the church in, some, in certain senses. Legally, um, you can't be sued for any actions on the you're conducted on the crusade you can't be uh charged interest for any debt you occur incurred along while you're on the crusade uh your property is protected by the church uh all pending lawsuits are put on hold uh until the completion of the crusade so in a sense going on a crusade you had you were guaranteed a lot of protections and guarantees by the church um it was extremely expensive to go on these crusades because it could take five, six years. So imagine having to accumulate five to six years of yearly income in one go. So many of these knights and local lords put themselves in extreme debt on the risk that there would be great reward uh, financially for the success of these crusades as well. Um, Another aspect too of why many of these individuals went on this crusade was because uh, some were looking for adventure Simply, you know, um, some were looking and involving the, the belief in the code of the chivalry of the knights that your duty was to protect the church, protect the orphans and women, the poor. Um, and it was a duty as a knight to go on these crusades. So there was a, you know, you can gain great military glory and prestige by going on these crusades. So it ties in with the chivalric honor of the knights. Um, it also can pertain to simply that uh, if you're the second, third or fourth son of a local lord, you're obviously not going to inherit a whole lot of land or wealth, if any at all. So the going on a crusade is a great way to maybe inherit some land or wealth uh, for yourself. You know, it's the only opportunity that might come your way. So that's another means. Also, this is, like I said, a feudal society. So if the lord goes, that's a feudal obligation. Many of the vassals have to go on these crusades as well. So they're like, so there's different contributing factors that play a role into why so many individuals win these crusades. Obviously we can't ignore um, the spiritual motivations, spiritual attractions of wanting to go. Uh, but there's also other factors that play a role, whether those individuals recognize it or not, or whether they thought about it or not. There's These are different ways and scholars really debate what was the primary motivating factor. But, but like I said, it's hard to pinpoint each individual was different in wanting to go on these crusades. So 
when Pope Urban II and the Council of Claremont uh, called for the uh, called for this crusade on November 27, 1095. There was an immediate response by the people. Uh, the people began to shout, God wills it, God wills it, uh, and began to you know mark themselves out for the crusade. Now, Pope Urban II wanted to have uh, kind of like a uh, a landing point for the crusading armies uh, to step off, unite together to step off like in August of 1096. But prior to that, um what ended up happening was a lot of these local peasants wanted to join and participate on this crusade and they were led by an individual named peter the hermit so this is known prior to the first crusade this is known as the people's crusade and so it was a massive gathering of tens of thousands and tens of thousands of different peasants very much disorganized very much poorly led uh to head to the holy land and reclaim jerusalem it would all be done by the power of these peasants and these serfs. And so they're poorly armed, not militarily trained. Uh, and what's interesting is that as this group, and this group heads off in, around the March-April time frame of 1096, uh, and so they begin to head northwards. So they most of these individuals originated in France. They headed northwards into the, to the Rhine Valley, into Germany. And uh, they began to target... Jewish communities. Now, the reason why this also took place was because there was also a level of um, end times uh, zealotry that also played a role in the thinking of the Crusades, that the only way that Christ will return is if, one, Jerusalem is reclaimed by the Christians, as well as unbelief is done away with. So in the spirit of removing unbelief, these peasants and serfs began to target these Jewish communities in Germany, massacring them wholesale, taking the wealth to help fund their expedition. Um, you know, some Jewish communities committed for suicide before the peasants arrived. So it was it was a pretty uh, unfortunate period for these for this part of the crusade for these peasants uh, and being involved in these actions. So as they turned northwards, they then finally began to go south and east, following the Danube River. Um, and then they even got into conflict with other local Christians, like the Hungarians, because there was a belief that another argument and attraction was the papacy had, if you were on a crusade, fellow Christians had to support you, providing you shelter and means to go on this crusade. Um, so there was an expectation that as these peasants were moving through Christian lands, that they would receive food and support and shelter along the way. Uh, but of course, this massive horde of people caused chaos and destruction uh in a sense wherever they went and so as they moved through these land the kingdom of hungary they got into conflict with local christians uh and so fights broke out skirmishes broke out between these so it's not a very <laughs> very uh good start to these crusades when the peasant army finally arrives outside the gates of constantinople alexius I really felt like he got more than what he bargained for um he was asking for a small elite force not this whole peasant army horde in front of him. What is he going to do with this? Scholars are, uh, there's two different sources and scholars are not sure exactly what happened, but there's an agreement that Alexius I was known for being uh, deceptive in his dealings. Um, and so one letter says that Alexius I invited the peasants into his city until he can acquire the ships and means to get them to go over. 
uh, maybe some training and some military training and armament, but not to to kind of slow their role and to keep them in Constantinople in the meantime. The other letter says the Alexius I was looking to get rid of them as quickly as possible and provide them ships and means to get over into Asia Minor and get out of the city of Constantinople. Uh, I'm more inclined to believe that. You know, you have a large group of people that can do damage financially uh, inf- and with the infrastructure of Constantinople, trying to handle tens of extras, thousands of people outside a city. You're just asking for problems. Get them out of your way as quickly as possible. So more likely, Alexius I looked to get rid of them as quickly as possible. They went over into Asia Minor. Like I said, no military training, rarely any military equipment, poorly led, and they were wiped out. The Turks immediately army gathered up their forces, attacked this the peasant crusade army, and destroyed and routed them. Many of the remnants fled back to Constantinople and kind of formulated shelter camps and waited for the arrival of the real for, the real first crusade army made up of knights and nobles. So this force was a, uh, an impressive force. So the first crusade <clears throat> finally gathered around Constantinople around December of 1096. Uh, it consisted of many different leaders of like uh, Godfrey of Bouillon, Raymond of Toulouse, uh, the Norman uh, uh, Italian warlord Bohemian, his nephew Tancred. Uh, so there's many different uh, great figures of these crusading knights, these great different lords uh, who gather up all their vassals and their armies. So historians debate the size anywhere from 100,000 to 60,000 is usually somewhere the near estimate, but it's, it's a fully forced trained army with uh with knights cavalry uh and and land army so there's a fully formulated well-trained force the problem is with this force is is that it has different leaders with different agendas um and no head to lead this army so it's constantly uh having to deal with bickering and debate and politics and pragmatism personal vendettas and agendas by these different lords uh, so it usually has a hard time getting to go. Uh, but before they step off into Asia Minor and begin to begin to move against the Turks, uh, they had to swear fealty to the Byzantine emperor. The emperor was looking, like I said, to reclaim the lost lands of the empire, of the Byzantine empire. So the emperor Alexius I uh, kind of strong-armed these local lords into promising that whatever land Byzantine lands that they conquer, they would turn over to the Byzantine empire. So already there's a sense of mistrust uh, between the Crusading Army and the Byzantines. So the Crusading Army is then brought over across uh, the Aegean Sea into Asia Minor, and they immediately lay siege to the city of Nicaea. Um, The city of Nicaea was a Byzantine city, um, and the Byzantine army that was with the Crusading force uh, made a deal. Um, as they were laying siege, the Byzantine army made a deal with the inhabitants of the city of Nicaea, saying, if you surrender to us, not the Crusaders, we will protect you and prevent these Crusaders from sacking your city. But you have to swear that you'll open your gates just for us. The citizens agreed to it. The Byzantine army immediately went in. They declared that they have required the city, and it's now in Byzantine imperial lands, and we don't have to lay siege to it. Now, so once again, this adds further mistrust, because now the Crusaders are upset that, you know, okay, we just spent this time laying siege to the city and we're not going to get anything out of it. We're not going to get any, gain any wealth from sacking and destroying the city. Um, and, and so you've deceived us by retaking, retaking the city. So in 1097, the city of Nicaea falls back into Byzantine hands. And pretty much after this point, the Byzantine army kind of ceases to work with the crusaders. And by the time the crusading army reaches Antioch, the Byzantine army has turned around and went home. 
Um, so the Crusaders were pretty much on their own by the time they lay siege to the city of Antioch. So the siege of Antioch took place somewhere between uh, uh, October of 1097 and June of 1098. And it's an interesting series of situations. So the Crusading army lays siege to the city and they finally acquire it through the bribing of uh, bribing one of the citizens to open the gates. Crusading army comes in, massacres, takes everything and hunkers down for the winter in this in the city. Um, but as they do so, a, a Muslim Turkish army comes in and then lays sieges to them. So now the Byzant- now the crusading army is stuck in the city of Antioch, uh, cut off from supplies, cut off from any means by a Muslim Turkish force. Um, and so the so what ends up happening is by the June of 1098, uh, the, the crusaders get desperate. And supposedly, according to legend, they find under the church in, Ant- in Antioch, they find the holy lance that pierced the side of Christ. And with this holy lance, they conduct a breakout from this, the breakout from the city and through the siege. And so all these knights just burst forth from the city. Supposedly, the, the angels of God joined these crusaders uh, in, uh, in breaking out and defeating the Muslim Turkish army. Uh, and so winning, the, and winning and capturing the city of Antioch. It takes and so after this victory, it takes the Crusaders another year to reach Jerusalem. So by 1099, they finally really reach the walls of Jerusalem. The army that supposedly maybe maybe have started about 10,000 strong, or not 10,000, 100,000 strong, is now made barely made up of 20,000 men. Um, so it's been a significant decline with disease, famine, battle skirmishes, as well as securing these lands and territories uh, that these crusaders are recapturing with this now much smaller force that has to lay siege to Jerusalem. It's a six-week siege um, that finally ends in 1099 with the capture of Jerusalem. The crusading knights break through the walls. Uh, They massacre the entire inhabitants. Muslims and Jews are killed, and the city is quickly reclaimed uh, for for Christendom. Uh, So what are the outcomes of this first crusade. Well, one is the of, of the crusades, it's the most successful. It achieved its end goal. Um, the reason why it was right, reason why it did so primarily was it couldn't have happened at a better time. The Seljuk Empire, this the Islamic Empire was not united. Uh, the Islamic world was very much divided between Arabs and Turks and different Emirates and kingdoms. So it was very weak and could not unite together to address this crusading army that came through. So it allowed the Crusaders to take these lands and conquer them very easily. Um, it reestablished uh, Asia Minor under the control of the Byzantine Empire and therefore extended the life of the Byzantine Empire until we get to the Fourth Crusade. Uh, it also led to the establishment of these Crusader states. You had the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the, the County of uh, Tripoli, you know, uh, the Principality of Antioch, the County of Edessa. You had all these different Crusading kingdoms uh, that formulated together. Um, Godfrey Bouillon was kind of the key figure in the first crusade and they wanted to make him King of Jerusalem. He took the title of defender of the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, but when he died, his, uh, his brother Baldwin, uh, took the title of King of Jerusalem. And so there was the kingdom of Jerusalem. Um, the, uh, with the establishment of these crusader states, there also came the establishment of the Latin patriarchs. So you had, you still have the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox patriarchs, of like Jerusalem and Antioch in existence. But now with the Latin uh, conquests, 
of these Western Catholics, you now had the removal of these Eastern Orthodox and the establishment of the land patriarchs, which in a, which in a sense still exists to this day. There is still a land patriarch of Jerusalem tied with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, because of these land patriarchs establishments, it creates immense hostility among the Orthodox people that live there. Um, and so these Orthodox peoples would seek to actually work with the Muslims uh, against the Western Catholic forces that are there. Now, at the end of this crusade, the remaining military force, pretty much all the crusaders go home. Uh, having achieved the, the great pilgrimage, having achieved great victories and glory uh, with whatever wealth they could acquire, most of them went home. Uh, the only force that remained was like 300 knights and 2,000 land troops. So there wasn't a whole substantial military force to guard uh, these crusading kingdoms. And that's going to be a constant problem. Uh, as we'll see through these crusades and why there's such a need to have these further crusades to take place. Um, so one of the what causes the second crusade is the fall of the Latin kingdom of Edessa. Edessa was one of those crusader states. It was further out near Mesopotamia. Um, it was much weaker uh, and, and a little bit, like I said, further away from any, any gathering of military forces. And so the Latin kingdom of Edessa uh, fell, and this is what will cause the beginning of the Second Crusade. Now, the real force behind this Second Crusade was a man named Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard uh, was born in France. Um, he was born to a crusading knight, uh, and as a young man, he was sent to a theological college where he was taught grammar, logic, rhetoric, and scriptures, and he had a decision to make whether or not he wanted to join the Cistercian Order or continue the life of a French noble, um, the Cistercian Order grew out of the Cluniac movement. I talked about the Cluniac movement in the last lecture. Now, the Cluniac movement gained a great expansion in monasteries. It was one of the largest monastic orders in Europe. The Cistercian Order broke was a breakaway from the Cluniac Order uh, because the, the Cistercians thought the Cluniacs were gaining too much wealth, involving themselves with too much land and property, and the Cistercians want to live the strict life of plainness and simplicity uh, that was expected of, of a monastic movement. So Bernard of Clairvaux joined uh, the Cistercian order uh, in, 12, in 1112. Um, he would found his own Cistercian monastery in Clairvaux. He would become one of the most influential preachers uh, in Europe and sometimes called the uncrowned emperor of Europe for his speaking skills and his involvement with many of the kings and monarchs and leaders of, of Christendom. Um, he's the, the most widely known of his writings is the sermons on the songs of Solomon. So he interpreted the book as an allegory of, of uh, spiritual love between Christ, uh, the bridegroom and the soul that's united to Christ as the bride. And the continuing theme of his preaching is always, uh, God's love for man revealed in Christ. He's, uh, complimented many times by men like Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther speaks highly of him, saying that uh, he's a greater, pre greater preacher than Augustine because he speaks Christ so excellently. Um, and uh, Bernard captivated his audiences with his preaching. Um, it was not uncommon for moms to hide their sons from Bernard because there was a fear that if they heard him speak, they would seek to join a monastery um, and seek to be like Bernard. Uh, because he was such, he had such a, a great, uh, great ability to preach God's love 
as well as has a gave a pervading sense of the internal realities. Um, in doctrinal matters, Bernard was still a strong disciple of Augustine and the writings and teachings of Augustine. He really kind of focused on the emphasis in his preaching and teachings on the human Jesus and the centrality of his life as the man of sorrows, more so than Christ being the risen son of God. doesn't mean that he didn't, just there's a greater emphasis and a greater trend towards that. Um, he also had a strong adoration for the Virgin Mary. He really, uh, he got somewhat in trouble though. Um, he was looked down upon because he never supported the immaculate conception of the sinlessness of the Virgin Mary. Uh, and because of that, like I said, he's not, he's not overly favored in the Catholic church versus men like Francis of Assisi and such because of those particular positions. Uh, Bernard was pretty much frustrated with the over-intellectualization of theology. While he rather, that doesn't mean he was against theology altogether, uh, but he believed that theology had should have a mixture of mysticism in it. And when I mean mysticism, it means in the sense that uh, that that expresses a desire for an intimate communion with God, for the soul to experience divine love. Like I said, it all centers around God's love um, uh, in, in how it's expressed in the cross of Christ and in the incarnation. Uh, he also taught that God is to be loved for his own sake because he is God. And it should be an infinite love. And that he Bernard developed this understanding on how love relates to sin and salvation. Uh, love is to be outgoing. It's to be unselfish. Um, and he, he sees the essence of sin as a misdirection of love itself. God's love is fully demonstrated, like I said, in the incarnation of the cross of Christ. Uh, it is a contradiction to glory and materialism and in the love of cross of Christ. Love involves self-emptying, giving up oneself, sometimes it involves pain. Um, love for uh, humanity should be for God's sakes. And so he kind of had this uh, level structure that, uh, for example, a person, a sinner, a sinner is a person or a man who loves himself for man's sake. And a sinner is also a person, a man who loves God for man's sake. But a Christian is one thing. It's kind of like a step as you move up this ladder. And so a Christian is a man who loves God for God's sake. And then the highest part of the ladder is man loves man for God's sake. And so there's a kind of a refocusing, like I said, the emphasis on, on God's love and, uh, and how God should be loved for his own sake and the consequences of that. So that's part of Bernard's legacy in his writings. Um, so Bernard uh, was constantly sought out for advice by different uh, leaders and rulers. Uh, his influence reached the highest point when his own student uh, became uh, Pope, Pope Eugenius III in 1145. Uh, so when the Latin kingdom of, of Edessa fell to the Turks, the Pope asked him to kind of go on, on a preaching tour to get to to drive up the need for a second crusade. He was actually able to convince uh, French King Louis VII and the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad III to lead this crusade against the Turks. Um, this crusade completely falls apart. Um, you know, it follows the same route of the original crusade. They face military defeats like a Dorylaeum, and then finally another defeat at Damascus. It's a, and they have a shameful kind of retreat back uh, to Europe, each taking their own pathways back. 
the crusading army was racked by different things like famine and fever and those military defeats. Um, and so it's an unfortunate turn of events for this crusade, especially after the success of the first crusade. Now, Bernard kind of blames it on the sins of the Western Catholic, uh, Western, Western Catholics involved on this crusade. But while the second crusade is taking place, there was a successful, uh, crusade technically in the Western part of Europe. And when a group of knights of, from England and Flanders invaded and captured Lisbon, in 1139, which helped establish the uh, Catholic Kingdom of Portugal. Um, Bernard was canonized in 1174, uh, so after his death. Um, like I said, he's still a very influential figure in the Catholic Church, but also he was an influential figure in the Protestant Reformation. Many of the Protestant reformers look back fondly on the writings and teachings of Bernard of Clairvaux. So that was the Second Crusade. So the Third Crusade begins as a response to the fall of Jerusalem. So prior to this, in between the Second and Third Crusade, the Islamic world unites under one key figure, a victorious Kurdish general named Saladin, uh, who unites Egypt and Syria together, kind of as one conglomerate kingdom uh, that surrounds these crusader states. Um, Saladin uh, achieves a great victory, defeating the kingdom of jerusalem's or the crusader army at the battle of hayden and he lays his siege to jerusalem um but after a lengthy siege the city surrenders saladin uh saladin spares the inhabitants of the city allows them to return home and it's a huge victory and win for saladin pope gregory VIII, in response to the fall of jerusalem calls for another crusade and in this case now we have the full might of the monarchies and kings and great leaders of Europe coming to the rescue of Jerusalem. You have the French king, Philip Augustus. You have the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick I, or Frederick Barbarossa. And you have King Richard I, the Lionheart. So all these great, in a sense, heroic figures uniting together on this massive crusade to go and reclaim Jerusalem and reclaim the power of these crusading states. Uh, Emperor Frederick Bar... So there's some problems, though... <laughs> with this crusade if much like the second crusade it falls in some sense falls apart on the way there frederick barbarossa drowns in his own armor so you lose uh the key germanic leader the german army is quite ineffective in this crusade it kind of dissipates and falls apart so really you have only the workings of philip augustus and um and richard the first and even then, those men disagree with each other about how to conduct this crusade. There's no key military figure leading this crusade. They lay siege and capture the city of Acre, uh, which was a important trading hub uh, for this crusader. So they acquire the city of Acre. With this victory, Philip Augustus decides, well, I'm going to go home. And so he leaves with part of his force as well. So King Richard is the last one there with the remaining military force. He tries unsuccessfully to uh, capture Jerusalem. He kind of went, fights a stalemating victory against Saladin. Uh, realizing he can't reclaim Jerusalem, uh, he signs a peace treaty with Saladin in 1192. Uh, this allows Acre to be part of uh, the crusading hold, uh, the crusading territories. So it becomes an important hub for trade between Western Europe and the Middle East as rise of Italian city-states like Milan and Venice began to take shape, uh, bringing these crusaders in and out of that city. Uh, but Saladin also allows for pilgrimages to take place to Jerusalem. What ends up happening, we're going to see a little bit later too, is that by the end of the 13th century, by the 1290s, 
all these crusading states will completely fall back into Muslim hands and that all the effort and lives lost in the, the conquest of these territories would finally would would be for naught in the sense that the Islam would once again reclaim these territories back for themselves. But the Third Crusade is always remembered, though, um, because of this heroic figures involved, men like Saladin and Richard I, the Lionheart. It's always remembered songs and poems and poetries. Um, it has a mythic level to it with the Third Crusade, uh, with the nobility. Um, so it's always the one that's highly remembered, wrote about, plays or wrote about it. Um, so it's always considered like the high point, even though it's not as successful as the First Crusade, it is considered like the high point of, of the crusading period. So we have there in to the with the unsing with the uh with the limited success of the third crusade we are we then have go into the fourth crusade. Um this was proclaimed by Pope Innocent III who we'll talk about in a different lecture. He was at, this was the high point of papal power and authority across Europe under Innocent III. And so Pope Innocent once again initiates another crusade to reclaim Jerusalem. Um this crusade is made of primarily of French soldiers. But once again, we come into an issue where financing this crusade is extremely difficult. And so there was a deal made with the city of Venice to build these ships to forget these crusading knights to go. But when the ships were built and the bill was due to pay for shipping these soldiers to the crusading lands, the French knights couldn't pay uh, to get over there. And so so the, the Venice said, all right, We'll help you get over there, but you're going to do some favors for us. So let's go. There's the city of Zara on the, the uh, Adriatic Sea uh, that's on the coast and in, in, uh, in the Balkans. And it's a Catholic city, but it's a thorn in our side. Help us reclaim it and conquer it. And we'll, you know, we won't charge you anything. We'll get you over where you need to go. And so the French knights agreed to it. They laid siege and captured the city of Zara, sacked it, destroyed it, destroyed it, massacred its inhabitants. And in response, Pope Innocent III excommunicated the Venetian and French forces, but he eventually changed his mind and removed and revoked the excommunication. Um, but it, it shows now that these crusading uh, elements fi are finally getting out of hand and out of control beyond what the papacy intended. Um, and so that was one element of the Fourth Crusade, but the Fourth Crusade continues uh, with with the uh, promise from Alexius Angelus, he was the son of the deposed Byzantine emperor. There's another Byzantine emperor on the throne. And Alexius promises these crusading knights and Venice that if they help him reclaim his throne, he would reward them. Uh, he would give them great wealth and give them trading rights and such. So the crusaders agree. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and reclaim Constantinople. And they do so. They capture the city of Constantinople, no problem. Uh, and Alexius is placed on the throne of Constantinople as the next Byzantine emperor. The problem then becomes payment. Uh, Alexius can't make the payment of what he offered to these crusading forces. And so in response, Venice and the French knights lay siege to Constantinople, sack, capture it, and loot it, and destroy it. Um, and so we see repercussions of that. We see, for example, the famous uh, four horses in Venice today from Constantinople, uh, arts and mosaics and other important works head westward. In some sense, a, a, a positive consequence is uh, the spread of Greek manuscripts and documents now start trickling westwards, which helps play a role in the beginning of the Renaissance and the, uh, the, the returning knowledge of understanding ancient Greek. 
uh, and as well as some other ancient Latin works, but that also we'll talk about later in a different lecture. So there is a, an impact from that. But the great negative impact is that this is pretty much signals the immediate decline of the of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. So with with the capture of Constantinople, this creates the establishment of the Latin Kingdom. So the Byzantine Empire is broken up into different Latin kingdoms ruled by different uh, Western Catholic lords. Uh, a Latin patriarch of Constantinople is put over uh, the Orthodox patriarch of Constantinople. And that position is always going to be filled until the 1940s when the position is finally abolished. Um, uh, so now you have even further hostility between Orthodox and Western Catholic Christians and further animosity and division over this period. Um, the Byzantine Empire is able to regain control and recapture Constantinople in 1261. But like I said, this really pretty much signals the end of the Byzantine Empire as a whole, and it's very much quick decline until 1453 with the final capture of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks. Uh, so this is a very sad and, and terrible ending point for these crusading period. Um, so, like I said, usually the Crusades are kind of encapsulated in these four Crusades, but there are other Crusades that have to happen after it, um, and we'll look at a few of them. Uh, we won't look at all of them, but nonetheless, they are important because they shape, like I said, the society, the increase in papal authority. We'll talk about the different effects of the, Cru of the Crusades here soon, but I just want to kind of encapsulate these four Crusades together and make sure, like, the understanding of those key points. So looking at some other crusades, so with the failure of the Fourth Crusade to achieve its objective of attacking Muslim Turks instead of attacking Catholics and Orthodox Christians, uh, Pope Innocent III calls another crusade. This is the Fifth Crusade. You see these crusades are, are coming up every decade. There seems to be another crusade being popped up. He calls it in 1213, and then he calls it again in 1215. There's an, and there seems... And, it, it's delayed because of Pope Innocent III's death after the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. But by 1217, it's picked up by um, King Andrew II of Hungary um, and uh, Ludwig of Austria, I believe. Uh, they join forces together to, um, uh, to fulfill the roles of the Crusades. King Andrew, unfortunately, has, his father was obligated to go on crusade, but never did. So the obligation falls to him to fulfill so he goes on this crusade, and once again, they uh, they rely on Italian uh, city-states to transport these, this crusading army. They land outside of Egypt uh, to, to defeat uh, Sultan al-Kamil, who rules uh, Jerusalem in the crusade, the former crusading states. Uh, so they lay siege to an Egyptian port named uh, Demitia um, from 1218 to 1219. It's a long siege. Um, it's unsuccessful. The crusading knights are stuck out laying siege. They finally capture it in 1219. Uh, but after that successful capturing, after a year of laying siege to the city, uh, they spend 20 months uh, trying to figure out what they want to do next. And so they waste time. Even Sultan al-Kamila even makes an offer to, re to give back Jerusalem uh, as part of a peace deal for these crusading knights, but they they daughter on trying to make a decision. And so the peace negotiations fall through. Francis of Assisi arrives. Uh, most think that he was arrived to help negotiate a peace deal between the crusaders and the Egyptians, but he really came came to uh, help convert Sultan al-Kamil. But Sultan al-Kamil kind of admired for, for Francis as this mystic and sends him back. Um, 
And so ultimately the Crusaders try to do one more breakout, like the Battle of Mud, and they're destroyed and nearly annihilated from it. It's a huge loss. And so the crusading forces have to sign a humiliating peace treaty by 1221 and, and are let go, allowed to return home uh, back to Europe. So the fifth crusade falters and falls apart completely. So then there's another crusade, the sixth crusade. Uh, this one's a short crusade. It's led by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Um, it, his Frederick II had a difficult relationship with the papacy. And there's this whole backstory involvement of many different uh, politics and uh, debates on the different sides between the Holy Roman Emperor and the papacy. Uh, Frederick II had uh, some favoritism towards Islam and, and Muslim practices more so than the papacy. But needless to say, he arrives in the Middle East and scores a huge diplomatic victory. Um, he crowns him because he's married to uh, one of the relatives of the um, uh, the family that was the, the kings of Jerusalem. Um, he claims the title of King Jerusalem for himself. Uh, Sultan al-Kamil uh, kind of gives him the territories around Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Nazareth uh, back to Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II and scores this massive diplomatic victory. And so once again, Jerusalem uh, is regained by the Crusaders and by Western Catholic Christendom as their territory. But this doesn't last after 1229. So nearly a couple decades later, in 1244, it once again falls into the hands of Islam and, and the Muslim, Arabic, and Turkish forces. Uh, so then, by like I said, by the end of the 13th century, all the crusading states fall, Acre and many others, fall under the control of the Muslim, Turkish, and Arabic forces. There are, like I said, there's many different crusades. We'll talk about the Albigensian crusades when we talk about the rise of heresies in uh, in Western Catholicism. But one that's interesting is the ill-fated Children's Crusade. Um, so this happened in 1212. It's a highly debated issue whether or not this actually took place. There are certain documentation, but it's kind of a mixed bag of whether or not this actually happened. So supposedly in 1212, there's a certain there's a certain zeal and charismatic movement that these children, young children, teenagers believe that they have been called by God to reclaim the Holy Land after all these different failing crusades, um, because that was after the Fourth Crusade. And so in between the Fourth and Fifth Crusade, this event took place, and led by these young teenage boys. Uh, there's there's two different groups, but this massive movement of young children, boys and girls. Uh, began to head southward in France to the Mediterranean coast. And they believed that by when they arrived by the Mediterranean Sea, the sea would part for them and they would be able to walk to Jerusalem and reclaim the city for uh, for Christ. Uh, what ends up happening along the way is that many of these children die because of disease and malnourishment. Many are sold into prostitution and slavery. And those that survive and arrive to the Mediterranean, they make deals with these merchants to sail them to Jerusalem, but these merchants... Uh, double cross these children and bring them to Turkish lands to be sold as slaves. Uh, it's a, like I said, it's a, a sad story. Um, it's debated whether or not this is, this had some elements of truth of some children wanting to go on a crusade and its impact, whether the numbers were larger or smaller, or whether or not it happened altogether. But it's still, like I said, it shows the, the zeal, the zeal and drive that in Christians wanted to participate on this crusade because of the attractions it promised and the belief that it, that these crusades would offer to them by participating in these crusades. Um, some important mil military monastic orders that were developed during these crusades. 
Um, the big three are the the Knights of St. John, known as the Hospitallers, uh, the Knights of the Temple, Solomon's Temple, in this case, the Templar Knights, and the Teutonic Knights. Um, they combine the aspects of the code of chivalry of the knights uh, with the monastic life, this fusion of these pilgrim warriors uh, that would follow monastic orders of celibacy and certain vows and religious practices. But all these monastic orders follow the same particular goal, uh, protection and support for pilgrims going on a pilgrimage. That was their purpose, was to protect them uh, in battle uh, against Islam and defend these crusading states. Uh, and so each one formed and was developed for different reasons and purposes. You had the Knights of St. John and Hospitallers were founded. Some Actually, in some cases, can be found earlier than 1048, uh, depending on the source. Uh, but primarily it was found for uh, medical purposes, building hospitals and caring for uh, for pilgrims uh, instead of being military defenders. But that evolved later on as being a military order in of itself to protect these pilgrims and care for these pilgrims. Uh, they have a long history, too, uh, of defending against Muslim and Turkish attacks uh, when defending Acre and then moving to Rhodes. Um, they were laid siege by the Ottoman forces and were forced to flee to Malta. And then the famous siege of Malta where they were able to repel uh, the Ottoman Turks. Um, so they they have a long history of fighting for hundreds and hundreds of years against, uh, against Islamic forces. Uh, then you have the Knights Templar, which was founded in 1118. Their order was actually found and written by Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, they also have a unique history and one that's kind of mixed, um, Ultimately, they, you know, like I said, they play a key role in defending of the kingdom of Jerusalem and the different crusading states. Uh, but ultimately, they all these monastic orders too grew in wealth and power and influence. Uh, so by 1312, um, the French king, uh, the French king Philip the uh, the Philip the Fair, uh, was uh, Philip the Fair in 1312. Uh, ordered the disbandment of and persecution of the Templars. So on on false charges of heresy, many Templars were put to death and their wealth and property were seized. Uh, despite these events, like I said, the Hospitallers and Templars would endure. Spillers would move, protecting roads in Malta and Christian Europe against Muslim attacks. The, the Templar Knights would, in some way, continue to survive and and eventually, though eventually, die out as an order and organization. The Teutonic Knights were founded in response to the expansion and Christianization in the Baltic states. They were involved in military campaigns in Eastern Europe. They played a role in Christianizing Prussia, Latvia, and Estonia, and then finally converting at the end of the, the 13th century, uh, converting the last pagan ruler of Lithuania to Christianity. And so they had an important role shaping that part of Europe and, and expansion of Christendom themselves. Um, so what are some of the effects of the Crusades? Well, one was the um, increased papal prestige. So with the rise of these Crusades, increased papal authority and power. Like I said, in a sense, Crusades were uh, the foreign policy of the papacy. This allowed them to, uh, at the same time, manage the affairs of the local lords to gain more influence over the affairs of these monarchies and lords in, in the Western church, but also to play a role and a shaping role and what was going on in the Middle East, involving the Orthodox Church, involving uh, the Islamic countries, uh, 
the papacy, like I said, is always looking to expand its authority, especially involving Eastern Orthodox Church, once again, expanding the power of the papacy there. Um, so there's always, in a sense, this growth of authority. But with the constant crusades, and as they become less and less successful, um, there's immediate decline, especially after Pope Innocent III, after the Fifth Crusade, there's a decrease with the authority and prestige that goes with the crusades as each crusade fails one after the other. Um, so there's one of the one of the outcomes, like I said, is increased papal power and authority and trying to achieve the papal agenda. Another is indulgences. Um, with the rise in use of indulgences, and now you can also pay for knights to go on the crusades, it began to be believed too that now, well, instead of just paying for knights to go, why don't I just pay the church? as a form of indulgence. I can buy an indulgence. And so that will play a role, especially too, when we, you, when we get to the Reformation, or if you, you, know, you read through your history and you get to the Reformation as a cause by Martin Luther. So this idea of paying for an indulgence began to take shape and take place, and that was an, uh, an effect of the Crusades itself. One we see because of these Crusades is not only the targeting of, of, uh, of Islam, but also the targeting of heretical groups. Crusades against the Albigensians, the Cathars, the Waldonesians. So all these different groups that we'll look at later, these heretical groups that appear. And so now there's a religious war, a religious connotation taking place by the papacy against these heretical groups. And like I said, there's other religious wars taking place, one in Spain, the Reconquista, that uh, is ongoing uh, throughout the history of Spain from the, 700, from the 700s onwards to the 1400s. Um, so it's an ongoing conflict. Um, so there's a there's a constant series of religious wars being called by the papacy. Uh, we see the rise of the development of strong monarchies. So the local the energy of the local landlords, plus the the uh, that's now being forced and focused on these crusades, but also the massive debt that these crusading knights have to carry, the burdens that they have to carry, um, and the need to have a strong bureaucracy to handle and manage these crusades leads to the rise of these Western monarchies. These monarchies begin to appear and accumulate power um, as being part of the Crusades. Because like I said, you had these, at first it was only, the first crusade involved only these local lords, but as crusades began to grow in number, many more individuals, kings and leaders of Europe who were the only ones who had the means to answer the call of a crusade. Local lords did not have the financial means to handle it, nor the bureaucratic system to accumulate a force to go on a crusade. But these monarchies eventually did, and they grew in power and strength, which in turn would play a role in weakening that power and authority of the papacy later on. Um, it strained the relate the crusade strained the relationship between Eastern and Western churches. We saw that with the Fourth Crusade, uh, with the capture and destruction of Constantinople, and the Eastern Orthodox Church reclaiming Constantinople in 1261. The treatment of the Orthodox Christians in the Crusader states. Um, so once again, it caused that bitter relationship between Eastern and Western church. There was also bitterness between Christians and Muslims as well in, uh, in, in the crusader states. And that plays a role even to modern day. Um, it's still brought up and talked about. And, you know, Western Christians are treated as crusaders because of the bad history of these crusades. So the outcome of these crusades and the effects are important because it continues to shape church history and it's still a part of church history nonetheless. So it shouldn't be ignored and should be studied and reflected upon both with its good and with its bad. Um, so thank you for joining us on this lecture. I hope you learned something and look forward to hoping you participate in our next lecture as we continue on with the history of church through the Middle Ages.